Welcome to the Tactical Tool Belt Climate Tech Podcast. On this show, we focus on how the real estate industry, the world's single largest emitter of greenhouse gases, can leverage climate tech to become part of the sustainability solution. I'm your host, Greg Smithies. I'm a partner on the climate tech team at Fifth Wall, the largest and most active venture investor in technology for the real estate industry. In this podcast, we'll be joined by people on the front lines, the people inventing, investing in, and deploying the climate tech we'll need to make our homes, offices, and communities more efficient, more sustainable, and ever closer to carbon zero. Hi, everybody, and uh, welcome to another episode of Tactical Toolbelt Climate Tech, Fifth Wall's podcast, where we talk to people who are on the front lines of decarbonizing the built environment. And uh, today we have the fantastic opportunity to chat with Steph Spears, who's the CEO and co-founder of Solstice. Steph, thanks so much for spending the time with us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So, Steph, uh, when I kick these things off, I'm I'm always fascinated about the sort of founding stories and how people got to where they are, because as many interviews as I've done, uh, no two stories are the same. Um, so we'd love to just hear a little bit about how you got to where you are today. So I was born and raised in Honolulu, Hawaii, the most isolated landmass in the world. And growing up in Hawaii made me an environmentalist even before I knew what that was, because it's all about living in harmony with your surroundings. There's a phrase in Hawaii called malama aina, which means to take care of that which nourishes you and to take care of the land. Um, and and that was very much ingrained in me as a kid. Uh, I was raised by a single mom who raised three kids on minimum wage. And I was the scholarship kid in my high school. Actually, my high school had scholarship kids serve the other kids lunch um, and you wearing a hairnet. And I remember looking at the kids who were scholarship kids alongside me left and right. Uh, and they were kids who grew up in families that didn't have money. And we would look across the lunch line for the people we were serving. And they were just kids that grew up with money. They just born into families that had money. And so I realized that the line dividing between the haves and haves not was really just the result of the birth lottery. And that's always stuck with me. Yeah. But you literally had a visceral line, right? Like you had the lunch queue. Yeah. Plexiglass. plexiglass like yeah, line in the yeah. sand, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but in the classroom, it didn't matter that I didn't have money as long as you kind of worked hard and studied hard. Um, I graduated from college and, and went on to work in an upstart campaign that didn't seem like it had a big shot at winning the presidency at the time, but it, it happened to be the Obama campaign. And so I grew up as a community organizer. That was my first job. And that is what I carry through even in my job today as CEO. All the lessons I learned as a community organizer, including rejection, having a gun pulled on me at the door, uh, because pe some people um, were incredibly aggressive when you open, when you knocked on their doors. And then I joined the Obama administration. I worked as a policymaker in the Middle East office during the middle um, the, the Arab Spring. And what I learned from that is, you know, we would be driving through the streets of Sana'a, Yemen, and we'd be talking about how to get a dictator out of power. But when you looked out the window, people were just lined up waiting for fuel. It was so clear that the geopolitics of oil were broken and we weren't affecting people's day-to-day -day needs and lives, which is to get the power to power their businesses and, and families and everyday lives. 
So I left what I thought was my dream job working in the White House to go be an intern. I was a 30-year-old intern working in Pakistan on renewable energy because I wanted to learn more about renewables and get away from oil. And worked in India after that on solar microgrids, solar home systems, and solar lanterns. And my co-founders and I realized, wait, why are we working on this stuff halfway across the world when back home in America, people lack access to clean energy? So that's the meandering journey that brought me to work in the U.S. on increasing access to clean energy um, from, from the start of politics and community organizing. Yeah, that that's fascinating background, and you actually made made me think. I I had a sort of visceral visceral experience, somewhat like yours, but mine happened a little bit later. Which is, uh, you know, I'm from South Africa, and um, myself and Trevor Noah were born, you know, literally within miles from each other. But you know, he's black, I'm white, and uh, reading his book Born a Crime, he was growing up in exactly the same time as me, a few miles away from me, and his life was like as night and day different from mine as you can imagine, right? So. Um, absolutely, it's it's incredible how 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 much that lottery really really can impact the rest of your life. Um, but I think Trevor's doing okay for himself today. Yeah. <laughs> He's yeah. resilient. Yeah. So um, okay, well, I think you've sort of alluded to this, but um, really, what then was the problem that you were trying to solve when you got to founding Solstice? When you look around and see who has access to solar in America, it's actually the fact that four out of five Americans are locked out of the solar market for rooftop. And it's because they don't live in a home whose roof they control, like a renter or condo owner, or they live in a home that has a tree covering the roof or the roof is facing the wrong way, or it's made out of the wrong materials, or they don't have the money to pay for solar to put on their home. It can cost 10 to $40,000 depending on local incentives And you can get solar financing for sure, but you have to have the right FICO credit score. And the right FICO credit score tends to be around 680 and above, which half the country doesn't have. So we're talking about, you know, a bunch of people, the majority of Americans, four out of five Americans cannot put solar on their own home, which means they're locked out of the clean energy market. And that's a huge problem because we're talking about getting to 100% renewable or clean energy in order to solve climate change. And we need to get there in the next decade or so. And so if we're not serving a huge swath of the population, then how do we expect to get to 100% renewable and clean? Because utility scale solar is not getting there fast enough either. Yep. There's also just the issue of the FICO score is a huge problem too, because Little known fact, in order to get solar in this country, like I said, you either have to pay up front or you have to have the right FICO score, but not that many people know how the FICO score is is calculated. And FICO scores, the credit scores, determine your destiny in America, right? They, they determine whether you get a mortgage and a car loan and sometimes a job or an apartment. And yet it was invented in 1956. It doesn't calculate whether you pay your utility bills on time, your rental bills on time, your cell phone bills on time, and it biased towards people who have mortgages. So you could have a half a million dollar mortgage and have a higher credit score than someone who pays their rental bills on time every month. So when we use FICO to qualify people and determine who gets access to clean energy, we are actually getting rid of entire populations from accessing clean energy, which tend to be low income and black, indigenous and people of color. So that's a huge problem with accessing clean energy we don't talk about enough. 
Yep. But I think also um, when people hear that, you know, like black indigenous communities, I think the natural reaction is to think like, oh, this is a niche problem, right? But it actually turns out, right, this is a massive problem affecting huge swaths of the population, right? So uh, like on your website, you have some of these statistics, you know, the, just the number of people who are renters or the number of people who can't access this and maybe run through just the size of the problem here. Yeah. So half the people in this country don't have that 680 and above FICO score. Uh, But when I say that it's affecting low-income populations more, there's about 40% of the country is a family of four that's earning less than 40K a year. That explains why we need to pay more livable wages, but it also explains why people aren't even given the chance to access clean energy because for decades it's been a premium product. And going back to the necessity of solving climate change, we have to increase access to this huge swath of the country who's being excluded. And systematically, it tends to be most often black and brown Americans. And so another element of the problem is the people who are most affected by climate change, the people who need energy savings the most that can come from solar power tend to be low income and black, indigenous, and people of color. They're also the ones that pay the highest amount of their salaries on energy. They have the highest energy burden. They live closer to fossil fuel communities, according to a bunch of studies. They have less green space in their communities, which means they suffer more from air pollution, which also is the biggest predictor of COVID morbidity. So there are all these intersectional issues about why it's important to increase clean energy access to these communities outside of the fact that we need it to do it for climate change. And it's also just the right thing to do to create equitable access to what should be a human right, which is clean energy. Yeah. I mean, what's what's that saying, right? It's expensive to be poor. Um, right. That that just there there are so many things standing standing in the way here. Um, but even in just purely simple terms, if we just cut it down to, hey, renters in America, people who rent their homes and therefore can't go and put solar on the roof themselves, that's a third of the country, right? Um, and then you layer on top all of the people with a FICO score, half of the country. Layer on top of that people, you know, the family of four under 40K, 40% of the country, right? So th- these are significant numbers here of people who just, we have this idea in mind of, okay, well, solar and clean power is just going to come and, you know, potentially save everybody. Um, but it's a little bit more complicated than that, right? If, if you can't put solar panels on your roof or you can't get the financing for it. Okay, so I think we've beaten around the bush a little bit enough here. Um, what is it that Solstice actually does in order to solve this problem? So Solstice is a community solar company that connects households and businesses to shared solar farms in their community. And for the life of the 20-year project, our software manages every step of the customer experience for the developers that build the projects and for the end user households that benefit from the projects. So there are solar developers out there and they're very good at what they do, which is they go out and find the land to build solar on. They put together the financing and then they do the, they take care of the installation, the construction for this putting solar in the ground part. What they're used to is selling power to the utility at something closer to the wholesale rate. And now there are 22 states in DC that have passed laws saying people can benefit from solar even if it's not on their own rooftop. They can benefit from solar that's somewhere in their area virtually. And that has allowed these developers to sell power to residents at something closer to the retail rate. 
So obviously developers love that because they get to make more money and it allows people who don't have access to rooftop solar to finally access a clean energy project, even if they don't have the right home or the right income to buy solar themselves and put it on their home. So it's very similar to getting rooftop solar, but it's just you're buying a portion of a shared farm somewhere in your community. The electricity from the shared farm goes back to the grid and you see the benefit show up as a credit on your utility bill for the solar that's produced by your share. And the reason why this is the most affordable and accessible type of clean energy out there is because there's generally no upfront cost. It's a subscription model. You're just paying for the power that's produced by your portion. And you're generally seeing in most states about a 10% discount on your bill for signing up for community solar. So you get to sign up for local clean energy, support local clean energy farm. You don't pay upfront, you get guaranteed savings. That is why this is the best tool in our toolkit for increasing access to more ordinary Americans to solar power. Yep. And also I like the fact that it's actually a win-win on both sides, right? The developer is getting more revenue, right? Because they're selling it closer to retail as opposed to wholesale prices. And just by the way, what's typically the delta between a wholesale versus a retail price of electricity? Do you happen to know? I mean, it ranges in different states, obviously, but are different utility zones. But, you know, it could be a, a 33% um, higher price, 40%. Okay, so your developer gets more revenue whilst your consumer gets cheaper electricity. This is kind of like a no-brainer, right? Um, what are maybe some of the complications here? Why is this difficult to do or why isn't everybody doing this already? The total addressable market for community solar is huge, right? It's everyone that cannot do rooftop, which is most people. The the issue with energy in general and distributed generation as a whole industry, which is inclusive of community solar and rooftop and CNI, the, it, the complication comes in the fact that we are legislated state by state. State by state regulations rule everything. And so it's really difficult to find an energy company that's operating in 50 states because the environments and the markets are so different and the compensation rates are so different. And it's not just state by state. It's we're dealing with wholesale markets that are regional that you have to contend with, as well as federal legislation um, like impending clean clean energy um, portfolio standards. So there's a lot of layering of policy that makes it complicated. But the fact of the matter is, in the last several years, there's been about three gigawatts of community solar built. And this year alone in 2021, according to Wood McKenzie, 900 megawatts will be built. So we're building more and more community solar and continues to grow more. And the current political administration, the Biden administration, has put a big emphasis on expanding access to community solar because it's one of those on- the only tools in our toolkit to give people savings while giving them clean energy access. In rooftop solar, we, we tell people all the time, if you can do rooftop, you should absolutely do rooftop because you're going to save more money. Likely, you're going to have an ownership stake in the solar farm that's on your roof. But the fact of the matter is not everyone can do rooftop for all the reasons we described earlier. And we need solutions outside of just um, the current paradigm of CNI, rooftop, and utility, because we're not getting to 100% renewable or clean that way. Got it. Got it. Okay. And just to be the devil's advocate, why is the greening of the grid not going to just solve this and and catch up fast enough? Why is the plug, the power coming straight out of my plug without me doing anything, not just going to go green fast enough? 
Yeah. I mean, it's an important question and it's a question we get a lot, which is why can't we just have all utilities go 100% renewable or clean and that solves the problem? We don't have to even think about distributed generation. Why think about things on a scale at the community level or at this um, commercial industrial level or the rooftop level when utilities can just go 100% renewable or clean? And that would be wonderful if that was the world we lived in. But The world we live in for a number of reasons isn't allowing for centralized generation of power to be 100% renewable or clean because often those utilities are regulated and regulations don't currently allow for incentivizing the utility to get the gigawatts of solar and wind that we need to enter our grid at the time frame we need it, which is essentially in less than a decade. And so it's kind of like saying in you know New York City that we should put all our resources in the New York City taxi medallion system while ignoring that there's Uber and Lyft innovations coming up um, and saying that we only can do things in a centralized fashion because we can't. The system incentives aren't allowing us to do it fast enough to solve climate change. Number two is we need to have more decentralized generation, distributed generations import is it allows for a more resilient grid. What we're seeing is natural disasters are obviously worsening. We've seen so many reports of it. We've seen it in front of our faces all summer and climate change is at our doorstep. And so as natural disasters affect our electrical grid more and more, we need more decentralized generation of power so that it's more resilient to the effects of climate change. So a distributed grid allows us to achieve climate change mitigation faster in the timeline we need it, and it creates a more resilient energy future. Yep, yep. And then I think the other angle that a lot of people forget is at the same time that we're trying to green all of the power, our demands for power are actually increasing, right? The cars are going electric. We're shifting from uh, natural gas furnaces to electric heat pumps. We're going from gas stoves to induction stoves, right? And so, you know, the, the, the estimates and numbers here, because all of the electric equipment is far more efficient than the fossil fuel stuff. So that's why people are moving over to it. But at the same time, it does mean that our overall um, pull or draw on total amount of electricity we need is going to expand significantly in the same time frame. So even if we did just take all of the existing fossil fuel plants, um, uh, power plants, and just convert them to clean energy, there still wouldn't there just wouldn't be enough electricity coming out of them, right? Um, so we do need more generation um, through this time frame as well. And that's the reason why we're seeing corporations, especially large tech companies, have become leaders on renewable energy deployments. And it's largely because their data centers are just consuming massive amounts of electricity. And then when you add new technology like um, blockchain and the electricity usage required to, to do that, the effect is exactly what you said, is that we are using more power and we need more of it to be clean. Yep. So this is, uh, frankly, again, one of these kind of no-brainer solutions, right? Cheaper electricity for the end consumer, much larger addressable market of people who wouldn't have an otherwise uh, good opportunity to get solar power. And then for the solar developers, right, just frankly, more revenue. Um, so a little bit of a, of a win-win. Um, so I'm sure that a lot of our listeners would love to learn more. So um, where can people find out more about Solstice? Yeah, you can visit our website at solstice.us. 
And you're, there are ways to connect to a local solar farm in your community. If one is not there yet, you can add your name to the wait list and we can either help you advocate to bring one to your community through getting legislation passed, or we can let you know as soon as community solar is available in your area. And you can be an ambassador to tell your friends and neighbors about community solar because studies have shown that why do people actually sign up for clean energy? It's not actually the environmental or financial benefits, number one. The number one reason is because their friends and neighbors are doing it. So people sign up for what their friends sign up for, and that's why we have to get a movement going for a clean energy constituency. Yep, absolutely. And I'm sure that many of our, uh, say, multifamily homeowners uh, here who, who own apartment buildings where all of their renters would like clean energy um, and they can't necessarily uh, put solar on the roof, uh, would love to be a channel here to uh, help you sell through to their tenants and uh, get their tenants on board with this stuff too. So Yeah, that's a big part of how we reach customers is we go through community partners and we share our revenues with our community partners who spread the word to their community, whether it be a property management company or a municipality or a community organization. Fantastic. Okay. Well, uh, you heard it all here. Um, you can hit solstice.us, S-O-L-S-T-I-C-E.us uh, to learn more. And thanks so much for spending the time with us, Steph. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Appreciate it, Greg. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Fifth Wall's Tactical Tool Belt Climate Tech Podcast. For more on Fifth Wall and our efforts in climate tech, visit our website at fifthwall.com.